we confess that uh, most of us in this room, and I know this is preaching to the choir at this particular point, but we profess that this is the highest authority in the land, this book, because in it, God's voice has been revealed. Um, and everything that we believe about life, and we believe about the world, we believe about morality, ultimately, we believe um, must come from, from this book. And most of you, I think, would confess the same thing. And, and, and I know for me, by way of experience, I'm, I actually have a desperation for this book. Like, just I have to come to it because through it, God feeds my soul. Um, he remotivates me. He convicts me. And, and it's, so it's a, like I'm, I'm desperate for this book. Even to hold it in our hands, it's a, it's a tremendous it's like treasure. And I mean that with all the sincerest honesty that I can muster up. But that doesn't mean that this book doesn't have hard parts to it. Um, there, there are different difficulties that we experience as we read and, and contemplate and study this book. Um, one of the difficulties that we have in it is there are places within it that are rather graphic, vivid, or even violent. And, um, and they're, they're hard to read and, and sometimes hard to, to, to picture in our minds that God would like do something like this or something like this would happen. Um, another difficulty uh, of this book is there are parts that are hard to interpret. They're not graphic, but they're just hard to interpret. Like, what is the point? You know, what is, what is the meaning? Why is that there? It's a question of, of interpretation and meaning and trying to understand, like, what, what was intended. That's, there are parts of it that are hard. I'm still wrestling through Revelation 11 and what are the two witnesses and the whole baptism of the dead in Corinthians. I think a lot of people through the centuries have scratched their head over that one going, like, what did you mean when you wrote that? So there are difficulties in terms of the graphic nature of certain parts. There's difficulties of interpretation. And then there's a third difficulty, which is the one we're really, really going to explore um, this morning. And that is there are passages and parts of the Bible that portray God in ways that, that can confuse, bewilder, or to some degree even offend our sensibilities, our, the sensibilities of, of our human autonomy. Um, our sense of fairness, justice, or even the value of human life. That there's certain parts of Scripture that, that just hit us funny, and it, g- it gives us a sense of God that we don't like. And this morning, um, we have the distinct privilege of coming to a passage that has all three of those difficulties. It's, um, there's, a, there's a rather graphic, bloody circumcision. Just going to say it out there. You know what that is. I'm not going to define it, but it's in there. There is a difficulty in part of it to interpret it. Like, it's almost like, like Paul was writing history and a phone went off and um, theological squirrel. And he just like, why did you write that? And I, I think you're going to sense it in just a second. But then the, 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 the third, third um, difficulty has to do with something that God says about himself that doesn't compute well with a lot of believers. It definitely doesn't compute well with unbelievers. So this, 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 this passage has, has all three in it, and we're going to look at that third one in particular, this aspect of who God is, something that the text reveals about him. And I just want to ask you to um, carefully weigh what's said. I realize in, in what's about to come out that some people could be confused, hopefully not by my presentation, but by what this says about God, others might be to one degree or another offended. And I just want to ask you, just wait to the end. And my real aim and hope is that there will be a, a collective sense of, 
wow, like God is so far beyond the limitations of our human thinking that all I can do is kneel and worship. That's, that's my hope behind this. So with that said, let me just say most of this message is about God. It's not about you. Um, it's about the who, not the do. Like, this isn't about giving you practical instructions on marriage. This is about who God is. But, but that being said, you know, I believe, and I think most of you would agree with this, that the do, what we do, comes out of the who. That, a, that an accurate, heartfelt, real um, realization of who God is is actually behind our motivation to actually go on and do what he's called us to do. So we're spending most of the time on the who this morning. So let me read the text. You're probably thinking, okay, I can't wait. What, what, what's up with this? Let me just read it, and then um, we'll get into it. And I'll kind of alert you as to those three difficulties. Moses is already, at this point, if you weren't with us last week, he has objected to going down to Egypt and being the deliverer. Um, but his objections are now done, and he's willing to go. And we pick up on his departure in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But, now here's the controversial line. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now here's the right turn. Squirrel, like phone went off while he was writing. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Like, what? And then here's the graphic part. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you were a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. That is, so the Lord retracted from desiring to kill him. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, do you sense just like, whew, like, why is that there? I hope to come to an answer that will bring us um, to the central and really singular point this morning. The first part of the passage is pretty fairly straightforward, right? It just talks about kind of getting things going, Moses going down to Egypt. I'm not going to focus on that part. But before or maybe on the way, the Lord says something to, to, to Moses, um, he tells him there, like, when you get there, this is what you're going to expect. This is what's going to happen. He gives him a preview. And part of that preview is that you're going to have to do all of the miracles. That is, all of those miraculous, devastating, horrifying plagues. You're going to go through them all. So get, so get ready. We're not just doing one. You're going to do them all. The sense of it is that Pharaoh is going to, he's not going to, like, cry uncle after the first plague. He's not going to cry uncle after the second plague or the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. 
In other words, he is going to dig in his heels like a dog at the end of a leash, and he's not going to want to go. And it's kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but even by the time you get to the end of Pharaoh's story, you realize he never ultimately broke. He, he brought his, his whole nation to a place of bankruptcy, his armies to a place of devastation, and presumably himself as well. That's, that's how stubborn he's going to be. So he's preparing Moses. He's, he's going to be one stubborn guy. He's just not going to bend. So you're going to have to go through the whole cycle of all these devastating, horrific power um, expressions, these plagues. Now, if we were to stop right there, we'd be like, man, that's just one stubborn guy, stupid guy, right? We would. But it's, it's the next line because what, what the Lord tells Moses is that, listen, behind his stubbornness is me. It's me. I'm the one doing it. I will harden his heart so that he will refuse to let my people go. Now that's that line underlined there is like one of those choke verses. You know, like you're reading along, going fine. You're like, <coughs> like what? How is it that God can harden a man's heart to disobey? That phrase in Exodus, I will harden Moses' heart, or Moses' heart, Pharaoh's heart, happens eight times. It occurs eight times where God is the subject of the word harden. Eight times it says, insists, I'm going to harden his heart. We're going to take this thing full term. He's going to dig in his heels and I'm behind it. One time, um, it refers in the book of Exodus to God hardening the Egyptian nation's heart. Like, not just a singular individual, but an entire nation collectively is hardened, becomes stubborn, unwavering, unwilling to break, unwilling to bend. And three times in the book of Exodus is Pharaoh the subject of his own hardening. Three times says, and Pharaoh hardened his own heart, which means... When you put those three together, that this hardening is both an individual and a collective thing, it means that God somehow is the one hardening, and at the same time, Pharaoh makes a choice in the process of hardening his own heart. So, like I said, this is just one of those difficult verses. How are we supposed to make sense of it? And for some of you, verses like this set off alarms in your head. Like, so what does this mean about God? How, how, How do we understand this, and how do we... How does it fit what, what we know about him? He's good. He's just. I mean, if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, if he was in the process of hardening him to the point where he would disobey, doesn't that make God a conspiracy to, a conspirator to sin? He had a part to play in it. And if God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would disobey, how can God then turn around and actually punish him for that? Do you sense any of this, or is this just me? This gets at some of the deepest questions as to why some people refuse to believe in God. How can God be involved in bad things happening? How can God be involved in the hardening of a man's heart who's enslaved God's own people? That's the question. So how do, we, how, how do we reconcile this as believers? In our own heads, much less, you know, to people who are on the outside of the faith. Let me, let me just offer three attempts at, at 
at some degree resolving this. Perhaps one justification for how God could be just in hardening a man's heart or a nation's heart has to do with the fact that he's basically enacting judgment for sin already committed. I mean, by the time you get to this point where he hardens Pharaoh's heart, you remember it's been centuries of slavery. There have been infants that have been put to death. Um, in other words, there's a lot of sin in the process of this, this, um, these events. And even the way that God speaks of his people Israel as a firstborn son, it, it, you sense that God is passionate about my son, let my son go. And it's kind of interesting. It's like the battle of two fathers. There's the father who is Yahweh, whose firstborn son is Israel. And if you remember back to what we just read, there is Pharaoh and his firstborn son. It's like the battle of fathers over firstborn sons. And Yahweh's like, listen, let him go. So a sense of, I'm justified in bringing this hardness on your heart. Almost in the sense of, if that doesn't, is clear as mud, Almost in the sense of Romans 1, where as an act of judgment on people who have already turned away from the living God and worshipped created things rather than the creator, he gives them over, right? He gives them over to the desires of their heart. You want that? I'll give you that as a form of judgment, as a form of increased hardening. Like maybe that's what's going on here. Because, listen, from what we know about God in Scripture... Any sense of civilization and justice in this world is because God in his common grace that is common to all is restraining us from being as evil as we could be. Which means at any moment, and this is, this is Romans 1, God could release this common grace that keeps us from becoming worse and worse and worse and we would become worse and worse and worse almost like um, civilization prior to Noah. So maybe that's it. Maybe this is it. It's just a sense of God passively releasing a person to become who they really wanted to be. His heart is already hard. God's just saying, now I'm going to let you go downhill. It's plausible. It's biblical. Probably doesn't scratch where you itch, though. And you're probably going, but. So here's a second possibility of resolution. Namely, that within the context, that this hardening in no way, shape, or form diminishes the personal responsibility of choosing. Three occurrences we've already, we haven't looked at, but you have to look them up yourself, where it says the Pharaoh hardened his own heart, meaning he had a choice in the matter. I know you're thinking, but, that's like small group, everybody has a but to it. Um, And even here in the text, he says, you know, I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse, like if, there's an if, there's a, there's a command followed by a condition. If you refuse, this is what's going to happen. That implies he has to make a choice. He's going to hear the words and he has to make a choice. So the Bible doesn't allow us in the way it forms things to a kind of either or thinking. Like either, either Pharaoh makes the choice or God makes the choice. It can't be both. I think the Bible would say, no, it's both and. Both things happen at the same time. God's choosing. God is hardening. But Pharaoh's making the choice, too, for which he's fully and completely accountable. Maybe that's what's going on here. Again, that probably doesn't scratch where you itch. 
but. Or a third possibility. Maybe God isn't really like in Pharaoh's heart. He's not like a puppeteer with strings. Maybe he's just using external, secondary, indirect agents or or people to incite what's already there. So God isn't like involved in the motivational workings of, of, of Pharaoh's heart. And God does use indirect means. God sends an evil spirit to incite Saul in the books of Samuel. Moses, perhaps, Moses was, was specifically chosen, I'm, this is a hypothesis, to incite the pride of mighty Pharaoh. I mean, imagine the guy with a crown, the guy who could, you know, snap his fingers and, and armies go this way and snap his fingers and temples are built. And all of a sudden, this 80-year-old shepherd prophet comes in and says, let my people go. You'd be like, the picture is like, If you were the person wearing the royal garb with all these people around you, that would incite a sense of pride, and you'd think to yourself, or maybe you just say it outright, that ain't going to happen, especially to the likes of you. Egypt does not bow to lowly shepherd prophets. Possible. Moses was specifically chosen as the instrument of hardening. Again, I probably doesn't quite scratch where you itch. It doesn't resolve things for you, does it? So here's the thing. God never provides us with an answer to the question. God never, never justifies his actions. He doesn't say, by the way, just in case you get the wrong idea about me, This is what I'm really doing. He just simply doesn't do that. And I think the reason is because God does not, is not, and will not justify himself to the limitations of human understanding. Rather, at each moment when biblical characters have come to him saying, listen, this doesn't seem fair to my mind, thinking of Job, why you would do this to me and I haven't done anything to you? That's a really brief summarization in which God comes and by the time you get to the end, he never answers this question of justice. He simply says, listen, there are things that are so far above your pay grade that you have no idea what you're talking about. To which Job comes and says, all right, like I'm a worm, not a man. I was speaking of things I just had not a clue about. That's that's at the end of the day, it's the answer is that God is free to be God. And, and here's the thing. There's a, there's a biblical point or uh, support for this. Paul, in Romans 9, answering a similar question of justice. How can God be just in hardening his people's heart, Israel, and letting the Gentiles come in? Is, is he reneged on his promises? Is God being righteous? It's same basic question. To which Paul Never really answers the question either. But what he does insist, reflecting on these narratives in Exodus, is this. He says, for the scripture, that is Exodus says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you. He was born for this purpose. 
to show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And the, 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 the conclusion is verse 18. So then, he, that is God, has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whoever he wills. The answer is, for Paul, God is free to be God. He is not limited to the human notions of justice and righteousness. He is free to be God. The the clay pot cannot say to the potter, why have you made me so? The potter has freedom in everything he creates. That's, that's, That's the answer. At the end of the day, the God of the Bible is free to be God. Outside and beyond the limitations of human, and might I add, warped perspective. Now, in one sense, you could say, man, that's just, the negative side is, the answer is you're not going to know. God is free to be God. He's free to harden whom he will. According to the internal nature of his character, we know that he's good, we know that he's just, we know that he does no sin, we know that he does not tempt, James 1, to sin. Nevertheless, somehow, in the grandness of who God is, far beyond the measure of human understanding, he can work in a man's heart in such a way that he's free from any conspiracy and not be connected with sin and be free. So, yeah, the negative side is you're not going to understand it. The positive side of it is that means God's beyond you and should create a sense of humble and odd worship. It's like, wow, like, like the, the, the end point where you should be from a truth like this is where Job was at the end of his life or end of, end of his book. All right, there are things too wonderful for me to understand. You and the freedom of who you are do things your own way I don't fully understand and I Live in the fact that you are free to be God and I worship you as a result of it. That's called the fear of the Lord. It doesn't fit your box or your categorizations. Um, And another good thing, what it means is, this is like the positive spin on it, is, is that the human heart is still the domain of God's sovereign work. It's not like, hey, God is in control everywhere, but he stops at the doors of the human heart. He doesn't do anything there. That's kind of an uncontrollable space for him, where he just kind of lets you decide your own things, and there's no purpose or there's no governance in this thing called the human heart. I think the scripture would say, no, even there, even in the darkness of the human heart, God is at work. And Like I said, the positive spin on it is, is that then that means there's nothing in all of our existence where God is, is not work. So what's really going on in the heart of a Donald Trump, which I don't know, neither do you. What's really going on in the heart of a Vladimir Putin? I don't know. What's really going on in the leader of the North Korean nation? I don't know. But I guarantee you one thing. God does. And whatever he's doing, he's doing it ultimately to the display of his power and glory. As he mopped the floor with Pharaoh, so to speak, God is working things out and he is in charge of the domain of the hearts of men. He is working things out according to his name. That's, 
that at least gives you a sense of confidence. That's, that's the grand and glorious view of Yahweh. That he is free to be God. He's free to harden whom he wills. But there's a, there's a positive side to this. And that brings us to this squirrel. The last part of the story. I didn't put up the point. But there it is. God is free to harden who he wills. The other side of it has to do with mercy. This part's going to take a little bit more mental uh, engagement. At a lodging and place on the way, the Lord met him. There's a big question as to who him is. And some believe the grammar convincingly points to Moses' son. That when it says at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, that is Moses' son. And sought to put him to death. That's just kind of, God all of a sudden wants to put Moses' son to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched uh, Moses' feet with it and said, surely you're the bridegroom of blood. And after she circumcises her son, it says, so he that is God left him, that is Moses' son alone. He, He withdrew from this act of judgment. What's going on here? The best I can tell, and nothing is in scripture accidentally, not when you're writing with ancient utensils on papyrus. Everything has a purpose. Verse 24 left off with God saying, let my firstborn son go, or I'm going to take your firstborn. In other words, if you refuse to obey me, I'm going to slay your son. That's how it ended off. So in this very next picture... Like Moses is going down to be God's deliverer, and apparently Moses hadn't been obedient himself in, in, in circumcising his son, which is why his wife had to do it. So at this point, Pharaoh, who's going to disobey God, is put right alongside Moses, who also disobeyed the Lord, and the Lord is moving in to take the life of his son. You see, that that's, that's like the, the connecting point. And the, the point being... That God doesn't go soft on sin, either Egyptian or Jewish. The, the wages of sin in both cases, Pharaoh, if you refuse, and Moses refusing to, or not refusing, but failing to circumcise his boy, the wages is death in both cases. It means that God does not show favorites. He's not like, oh, I told Moses, I like him. He's a good guy. I'm going to overlook that one. Pharaoh, bad guy. I'm going to punish him. It's like, at the end of the day, both men are exposed as sinners. In the first case, God is going to bring destruction in death. That is with Pharaoh. In the second case, something happens to change God's purpose. The Lord sought to kill him and then turned away. What's the difference? The difference is blood. Zipporah says, listen, I'm going to do this. And it's not just about her act of obedience because Moses failed. It's that the descriptions. She cut off the foreskin. This is the graphic part. And she touched Moses' feet with it. 
blood. Circumcision, blood, both symbols of death. And you know the verb that, that, that is translated touch here in Hebrew is the same verb that's used at the Passover when they touched, same word, the doorposts of their houses with the blood of the lamb so that the Lord would see the blood and he would pass over and allow them to live. Many see this as like a, like a, like a pointer, a preview. It's like the only thing that's going to save you, Moses, is blood. The only thing that's going to save your people, Moses, is the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. The same thing. The difference between God seeking to kill and God relenting is this act of obedience in the, the blood of his son. All of it, I think God's uh, masterful way of saying everyone has sinned. And as a result of sin, everybody is, is, uh, is liable to death and judgment. But where there's blood and covering, there is, there is forgiveness. And there is a removal of anger. Pointing us ultimately to the big and the only blood that really matters in the scripture, and that is the blood of Christ, God's own firstborn son, so to speak, laid out for us so that God would relent and, in fact, go on to embrace us as his kids. That's at expense to himself. It's kind of interesting, and and, and God is free to harden whoever he wishes, but when God wants or when God dispenses mercy, it always comes by way of blood. There's always a cost involved. And when you back up and look at these two people, Pharaoh and Moses, both men sinners, one receives hardening and the other receives mercy, like what explains, what explanation is there behind the hardening and the mercy? And again, the answer to the question is God's freedom. That God is free to give mercy on whom he will give mercy And he is free to harden whom he will. God is free to be God. He is not constrained by any outside influence. He is not manipulated. No one gives him a full Nelson. There's nothing outside of him that forces him to show mercy to somebody or to to harden somebody. He in his divinity is sovereignly free. And you know what that means? He has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills because he is God himself and is not confined to human understanding. It means that if you're here this morning and you know the Lord, that is you have embraced the fact that God is the one who spilled his own blood so that you could live and so that you could then be his son or daughter. If you believe that and you've embraced that and it's begun to change your life, you know what? It's not because you're smarter than other people. It's not because you're more spiritually inclined than other people. It's not because you were born into a Christian family. It's not because you were spiritually more sensitive and had a vibe with cosmic waves. You're here today and you believe that and you get that and you've embraced that for the simple fact that God in his freedom, he chose you. He chose to love you He wasn't driven by some sentimental movement of emotion that said, oh, look at my poor sinful children down there. Now God does feel compassion, but that's not what moved him. 
It's like, I choose you. I choose to love you. I choose to forgive you. I choose to make you mine. So at the end of the day, we are who we are because God was free to be God and he chose to show mercy to you and to me. And all that does, that the effect that that, has, that truth has on the human soul is that it drops you to your knees. And all you can do is just say, thank you that in your freedom, in somehow, somehow in the pleasure of your heart, you saw fit to choose me. And it's not because of me. You chose to show mercy. And that is, friends, that I know sometimes that truth can come at you like a Mack truck, and you're just like, I just, man, that just. But you know, it is, it is, it is a truth that allows God to be God and us to be us. And no one likes to be judged, right? It's like the new race car, don't judge me, you know. No, no judgment here. Christians don't want to be judged as bigots because of our commitment to biblical morality. And people don't want to be judged by the color of their skin, color of their eyes, color of their hair, or where they come from. No one likes to be judged. But you know what? I'd venture, I'd venture to say the most judged person on the planet in all of history is God himself. Of people looking at their experiencing and saying, you know what? I'm not, as, I'm not as successful as I thought I'd be. And it feels to me, God, like you are unfair. And a sense of judgment forms about God. Or God takes something away that's dear to you, a person or a possession. And it feels to you unfair. And so you come to a tentative conclusion in your heart that, God, this, you're, you're not righteous and just like I thought you were. You may never articulate it that way, but those kinds of judgmental conclusions happen in the heart of even Christian people that warps and embitters and sours their soul. And a truth like this that says, listen, child, your understanding is so minuscule compared to who I am. Accept by faith the simple fact that I am free to be who I am, and I don't answer to you. And in the surrender to that, like a willing, trustful surrender, like you are so big, because that's who you are, that I actually now can, can let this go, this judgment that I had on you. And instead of trying to get your head around it, and in the process judging him, for your lack, you're able to say with your heart what Paul was able to say at the end of this section in Romans 9, it's actually 11, or he just said, listen, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. Never going to understand it. And how unscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. And with that, all God's people should say, Amen. Open your heart to the truth. God is free to be God in your life. And submit to it. And let whatever it is go. God, we worship you as the beginning and the end and the one who miraculously, mysteriously, wisely works all things.
to the glory of your name and the eternal well-being of your people. Help us to believe and embrace that truth and live in the glory of your, your sovereign freedom to harden and at the same time show infinite mercy and love and grace to those that you've called to be your children in Christ's name. Amen.